Chapter Three of Industrial Biography Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Iron Smelting by Pit Coal. Dud Dudley. God of his infinite goodness, if he will take notice of his goodness unto this nation hath made this country a very granary for the supply of smiths with iron, coal, and lime made with coal, which hath much supplied these men with corn also of late, and from these men a great part, not only of this island, but also of his majesty's other kingdoms and territories, with iron wares have their supply, and wood in these parts almost exhausted, although it were of late a mighty woodland country. Dudley's Metallum Martis, 1665 The severe restrictions enforced by the legislature against the use of wood in iron smelting had the effect of almost extinguishing the manufacture. New furnaces ceased to be erected, and many of the old ones were allowed to fall into decay, until it began to be feared that this important branch of industry would become completely lost. The same restrictions alike affected the operations of glass manufacture, which, with the aid of foreign artisans, had been gradually established in England, and was becoming a thriving branch of trade. It was even proposed that the smelting of iron should be absolutely prohibited. Many think, said a contemporary writer, that there should be no works anywhere. They do so devour the woods. The use of iron, however, could not be dispensed with. The very foundations of society rested upon an abundant supply of it, for tools and implements of peace, as well as for weapons of war. In the dearth of the article at home, a supply of it was therefore sought from abroad, and both iron and steel came to be imported in largely increased quantities. This branch of trade was principally in the hands of the Steelyard Company of Foreign Merchants, established in Upper Thames Street, a little above London Bridge, and they imported large quantities of iron and steel from foreign countries, principally from Sweden, Germany and Spain. The best iron came from Spain, though the Spaniards on their part coveted our English-made cannons, which were better manufactured than theirs while the best steel came from Germany and Sweden. Under these circumstances it was natural that persons interested in the English iron manufacture should turn their attention to some other description of fuel, which would serve as a substitute for the prohibited article. There was known to be an abundance of coal in the northern and midland counties, and it occurred to some speculators, more than usually daring, to propose it as a substitute for the charcoal fuel made from wood. But the same popular prejudice which existed against the use of coal for domestic purposes prevented its being employed for purposes of manufacture. And they were thought very foolish persons indeed who first promulgated the idea of smelting iron by means of pit coal. The old manufacturers held it to be impossible to reduce the ore in any other way than by the means of charcoal of wood. It was only when the wood in the neighbourhood of the ironworks had been almost entirely burnt up that the manufacturers were driven to entertain the idea of using coal as a substitute. But more than a hundred years passed before the practice of smelting iron by its means became general. 
The first who took out a patent for the purpose was one Simon Sturtevant, a German skilled in mining operations. The professed object of his invention being to kneel, melt, and work all kinds of metal ores, irons, and steels with sea coal, pit coal, earth coal, and brush fuel. The principal end of his invention, he states in his Treatise of Metallica, is to save the consumption and waste of the woods and timber of the country. And should his design succeed, he holds that it will prove to be the best and most profitable business and invention that ever was known or invented in England these many years. He says he has already made trial of the process on a small scale, and is confident that it will prove equally successful on a large one. Sturtevant was not very specific as to his process, but it incidentally appears to have been his purpose to reduce the coal by an imperfect combustion to the condition of coke, thereby ridding it of those malignant properties which are averse to the nature of metallic substances. The subject was treated by him, as was customary in those days, as a great mystery, made still more mysterious by the multitude of learned words under which he undertook to describe his ignic invention. All the operations of industry were then treated as secrets. Each trade was a craft, and those who followed it were called craftsmen. Even the common carpenter was a handicraftsman, and skilled artisans were cunning men. But the higher branches of work were mysteries, the communication of which to others was carefully guarded by the regulation of the trade skills. Although the early patents are called specifications, they, in reality, specify nothing. They are, for the most part, a mere haze of words, from which very little definite information can be gleaned as to the processes patented. It may be that Sturtevant had not yet reduced his idea to any practicable method, and therefore could not definitely explain it. However that may be, it is certain that his process failed when tried on a large scale, and Sturtevant's patent was accordingly cancelled at the end of a year. The idea, however, had been fairly born, and repeated patents were taken out with the same object from time to time. Thus, immediately on Sturtevant's failure becoming known, one John Rovenzon, who had been mixed up with the other's adventure, applied for a patent for making iron by the same process, which was granted him in 1613. His Treatise of Metallica shows that Rovenzon had a true conception of the method of manufacture. Nevertheless, he too failed in carrying out the invention in practice, and his patent was also cancelled. Though these failures were very discouraging, like experiments continued to be made and patents taken out, principally by Dutchmen and Germans, but no decided success seems to have attended their efforts until the year of 1620, when Lord Dudley took out his patent for melting iron ore, making bar iron, etc., with coal in furnaces with bellows. This patent was taken out at the insistence of his son, Dud Dudley, whose story we gather partly from his treatise entitled Metallum Martis, and partly from various petitions presented by him to the King, which are preserved in the State Paper Office. And it runs as follows. Dud Dudley was born in 1599, 
the natural son of Edward, Lord Dudley, of Dudley Castle in the county of Worcester. He was the fourth of eleven children by the same mother, who was described in the pedigree of the family given in the herald's visitation of the county of Stafford in the year 1663, signed by Dud Dudley himself, as Elizabeth, daughter of William Tomlinson of Dudley, concubine of Edward, Lord Dudley. Dud's eldest brother is described in the same pedigree as Robert Dudley, squire of Netherton Hall, and as his sisters mostly married well, several of them county gentlemen, it is obvious that the family, notwithstanding that the children were born out of wedlock, held a good position in their neighbourhood, and were regarded with respect. Lord Dudley, though married and having legitimate heirs at the time, seems to have attended to the bringing up of his natural children, educating them carefully, and afterwards employing them in confidential offices connected with the management of his extensive property. Dud describes himself as taking great delight, when a youth, in his father's ironworks near Dudley, where he obtained considerable knowledge of the various processes of the manufacture. The town of Dudley was already a centre of the iron manufacture, though chiefly of small wares, such as nails, horseshoes, keys, locks, and common agricultural tools. And it was estimated that there were about twenty thousand smiths and workers in iron of various kinds, living within a circuit of ten miles of Dudley Castle. But as in the southern counties the production of iron had suffered great diminution from the want of fuel in the district, though formerly a mighty woodland country, and many important branches of the local trade were brought almost to a standstill. Yet there was an extraordinary abundance of coal to be met with in the neighbourhood, coal in some places lying in seams ten feet thick, ironstone four feet thick immediately under the coal, with limestone conveniently adjacent to both. The conjunction seems almost providential. As if, observes Dud, God had decreed the time when and how these smiths should be supplied, and this island also, with iron, and most especially that this coal and ironstone should give the first and just occasion for the invention of smelting iron with pit-coal. Though, as we have already seen, all attempts heretofore made with that object had practically failed. Dud was a special favourite of the Earl, his father, who encouraged his speculations with reference to the improvement of the iron manufacture, and gave him an education calculated to enable him to turn his excellent practical abilities to account. He was studying at Balliol College, Oxford, in the year 1619, when the Earl sent for him to take charge of an iron furnace and two forges in the chase of Pensnet in Worcestershire. He was no sooner installed manager of the works than feeling hampered by the want of wood for fuel, his attention was directed to the employment of pit-coal as a substitute. He altered his furnace accordingly, so as to adopt it to the new process, and the result of the first trial was such as to induce him to persevere. It is nowhere stated in Dud Dudley's treatise what was the precise nature of the method adopted by him, but it is most probable that, in endeavouring to substitute coal for wood as fuel, he would subject the coal to a process similar to that of charcoal burning. The result would be what is called coke, and as Dudley informs us that he followed up his first experiments with a second blast, by means of which he was enabled to produce good marketable iron, the presumption is that his success was also due to an improvement of the blast, 
which he contrived for the purpose of keeping up the active combustion of the fuel. Though the quantity produced by the new process was comparatively small, not more than three tons a week from each furnace, Dudley anticipated that greater experience would enable him to increase the quantity, and at all events he had succeeded in proving the practicability of smelting iron with fuel made from pit coal, which so many before him had tried in vain. Immediately after the second trial had been made with such good issue, Dud wrote to his father, the Earl, then in London, informing him what he had done, and desiring him at once to obtain a patent for the invention from King James. This was readily granted, and the patent, number 18, dated 22nd of February, 1620, was taken out in the name of Lord Dudley himself. Dud proceeded with the manufacture of iron at Pensnet, and also at Cradley in Staffordshire, where he erected another furnace, and a year after the patent was granted, he was enabled to send up to the tower, by the king's command, a considerable quantity of the new iron for trial. Many experiments were made with it, its qualities were fairly tested, and it was pronounced good merchantable iron. Dud adds in his treatise that his brother-in-law, Richard Parkhouse of Sedgley, had a fowling gun there made of the pit coal, which was well approved. There was, therefore, every prospect of the new method of manufacture becoming fairly established, and with greater experience further improvements might with confidence be anticipated, when a succession of calamities occurred to the inventor which involved him in difficulties and put an effectual stop to the progress of his enterprise. The new works had been in successful operation little more than a year when a flood, long after known as the Great Mayday Flood, swept away Dudley's principal works at Cradley, and otherwise inflicted much damage through the district. At the market town called Stourbridge, says Dud, in the course of his curious narrative, although the author sent with speed to preserve the people from drowning, and one resolute man was carried from the bridge there in the daytime, the nether part of the town was so deep in water that the people had much ado to preserve their lives in the uppermost rooms of their houses. Dudley himself received very little sympathy for his losses. On the contrary, the iron smelters of the district rejoiced exceedingly at the destruction of his works by the flood. They had seen him making good iron by his new patent process, and selling it cheaper than they could afford to do. They accordingly put in circulation all manner of disparaging reports about his iron. It was bad iron, not fit to be used. Indeed, no iron except what was smelted with charcoal of wood could be good. To smelt it with coal was a dangerous invention, and could only result in some great public calamity. The ironmasters even appealed to King James to put a stop to Dud's manufacture, alleging that his iron was not merchantable. And then came the great flood, which swept away his works. The hostile ironmasters, now hoping that there was an end forever of Dudley's pit-coal iron, but Dud, with his wonted energy, forthwith set to work and repaired his furnaces and forges, though at great cost, and in the course of a short time the new manufacture was again in full progress. The ironmasters raised a fresh outcry against him, and addressed another strong memorial against Dud and his iron to King James. This seems to have taken effect and in order to ascertain the quality of the article by testing it upon a large scale, 
the king commanded Dudley to send up to the Tower of London with every possible speed quantities of all sorts of bar iron made by him, fit for the making of muskets, carbines, and iron for great bolts for shipping, which iron, continues Dud, being so tried by artists and smiths, the ironmasters and ironmongers were all silenced until the twenty-first year of King James's reign. The ironmasters then endeavoured to get the Dudley patent included in the monopolies to be abolished by the statutes of that year. But all they could accomplish was the limitation of the patent to fourteen years instead of thirty-one, the special exemption of the patent from the operation of the statute affording a sufficient indication of the importance already attached to the invention. After that time Dudley went on with his invention cheerfully, and made annually great store of iron, good and merchantable, and sold it unto diverse men at twelve pounds per ton. I also, said he, made all sorts of cast-iron wares, as brewing cisterns, pots, mortars, etc., better and cheaper than any yet made in these nations with charcoal, some of which are yet to be seen by any man at the author's house in the city of Worcester that desires to be satisfied of the truth of the invention. Notwithstanding this decided success, Dudley encountered nothing but trouble and misfortune. The ironmasters combined to resist his invention. They fastened lawsuits upon him, and succeeded in getting him ousted from his works at Cradley. From thence he removed to Himley, in the county of Stafford, where he set up a pit-coal furnace. But being without the means of forging the iron into bars, he was constrained to sell the pig-iron to the charcoal ironmasters, who did him much prejudice, not only deriding his stock, but also disparaging his iron. He next proceeded to erect a large new furnace at Hasco Bridge, near Sedgley, in the same county, for the purpose of carrying out the manufacture on the most improved principles. This furnace was of stone, twenty-seven feet square, provided with unusually large bellows, and when in full work he says he was enabled to turn out seven tons of iron per week, the greatest quantity of pit-coal iron ever made yet in Great Britain. At the same place he discovered and opened out new workings of coal ten feet thick, lying immediately over the ironstone and he prepared to carry on his operations on a large scale. But the new works were scarcely finished when a mob of rioters, instigated by the charcoal ironmasters, broke in upon them, cut in pieces the new bellows, and destroyed the machinery, and laid the results of all his deep-laid ingenuity and persevering industry in ruins. From that time forward Dudley was allowed no rest nor peace. He was attacked by mobs, worried by lawsuits, and eventually overwhelmed by debts. He was then seized by his creditors and sent up to London, where he was held prisoner in the comptoir for several thousand pounds. The charcoal ironmen thus, for a time, remained masters of the field. Charles I seems to have taken pity on the suffering inventor, and on his earnest petition, setting forth a great advantage to the nation of his invention, from which he had as yet derived no advantage, but only losses, sufferings, and persecution, the king granted him a renewal of his patent in the year 1638, three other gentlemen joining him as partners, and doubtless providing the requisite capital for carrying on the manufacture after the plans of the inventor. But Dud's evil fortune continued to pursue him. 
the patent had scarcely been secured ere the civil war broke out, and the arts of peace must at once perforce give place to the arts of war. Dud's nature would not suffer him to be neutral at such a time, and when the nation divided itself into two hostile camps, his predilections being strongly loyalist, he took the side of the king with his father. It would appear from a petition presented by him to Charles II in 1660, setting forth his sufferings in the royal cause, and praying for restoral of certain offices which he had enjoyed under Charles I, that as early as the year 1637 he had been employed by the king on a mission into Scotland, in the train of the Marquis of Hamilton, the king's commissioner. Again in 1639, leaving his ironworks and partners, he accompanied Charles on his expedition across the Scotch border, and was present with the army until its discomfiture at Newburn, near Newcastle, in the following year. The sword was now fairly drawn, and Dud seems for a time to have abandoned his ironworks, and followed entirely the fortunes of the king. He was sworn surveyor of the Mews or Armoury in 1640, but being unable to pay for the patent, another was sworn in in his place. Yet his loyalty did not falter, for in the beginning of 1642, when Charles set out from London, shortly after the fall of Stafford and Lord, Dud went with him. He was present before Hull, when Sir John Hotham shut its gates in the King's face, at York, when the Royal Commissions of Array were sent out, enjoining all loyal subjects to send men, arms, money, and horses, for the defence of the King and maintenance of the law. At Nottingham, where the royal standard was raised, at Coventry, where the townspeople refused the king entrance, and fired upon his troops from the walls, at Edge Hill, where the first great but indecisive battle was fought between the contending parties. In short, as Dud Dudley states in his petition, he was in most of the battles that year, and also supplying his late sacred majesty's magazines of Stafford, Worcester, Dudley Castle, and Oxford, with arms, shot, drakes and cannon, and also became major under Sir Francis Worsley's regiment, which was much decayed. In 1643, according to the statement contained in his petition above referred to, Dud Dudley acted as military engineer in setting out the fortifications of Worcester and Stafford, and furnishing them with ordnance. After the taking of Lichfield, in which he had a share, he was made colonel of dragoons, and accompanied the Queen with his regiment to the royal headquarters at Oxford. The year after we find him at the siege of Gloucester, then at the first battle of Newbury, leading the full-on hope with Sir George Lyle, afterwards marching with Sir Charles Lucas into the associate counties, and present at the royalist rout at Newport. That he was esteemed a valiant and skilful officer is apparent from the circumstance that in 1645 he was appointed General of Prince Morris's train of artillery and afterwards held the same rank under Lord Ashley. The iron districts, being still for the most part occupied by the royal armies, our military engineer turned his practical experience to account by directing the forging of drakes of bar iron, which were found of great use, giving up his own dwelling-house in the city of Worcester for the purpose of carrying out the manufacture of these and other arms. But Worcester and the western towns fell before the parliamentarian armies in 1646, and all the ironworks belonging to royalists, from which the principal supplies of arms had been drawn by the king's army, 
were forthwith destroyed. Dudley fully shared in the dangers and vicissitudes of that trying period, and bore his part throughout like a valiant soldier. For two years nothing was heard of him until, in 1648, when the King's party drew together again and made head in different parts of the country, north and south. Goring raised his standard in Essex, but was driven by Fairfax into Colchester, where he defended himself for two months. While the siege was in progress, the Royalists determined to make an attempt to raise it. On this Dudley again made his appearance in the field, and, joining sundry other counties, he proceeded to raise two hundred men, mostly at his own charge. They were, however, no sooner mustered in Boscobella Woods near Maidley than they were attacked by the Parliamentarians, and dispersed or taken prisoners. Dud was among those so taken, and he was first carried to Hartlebury Castle, and thence to Worcester, where he was imprisoned. Recounting the sufferings of himself and his followers on this occasion, in the petition presented to Charles II in 1660, he says, Two hundred men were dispersed, killed, and some taken, namely Major Harcourt, Major Elliots, Captain Long, and Connet Hodgetts, of whom Major Harcourt was miserably burned with matches. The petitioner and the rest were stripped almost naked, and in triumph and scorn carried up to the city of Worcester, which place Dud had fortified for the king, and kept close prisoners with double guards set upon the prison and the city. Notwithstanding this close watch and durance, Dudley and Major Elliots contrived to break out of jail, making their way over the tops of the houses, afterwards passing the guards at the city gates, and escaping into the open country. Being hotly pursued, they travelled during the night, and took to the trees during the daytime. They succeeded in reaching London, but only to drop again into the lion's mouth, for first Major Elliots was captured, then Dudley, and both were taken before Sir John Warner, the Lord Mayor, who forthwith sent them before the Cursed Committee of Insurrection, as Dudley calls them. The prisoners were summarily sentenced to be shot to death, and were meanwhile closely imprisoned in the gatehouse at Westminster with other royalists. The day before their intended execution, the prisoners formed a plan of escape. It was Sunday morning, the 20th of August, 1648, when they seized their opportunity, at ten of the clock in sermon time. And overpowering the jailers, Dudley, with Sir Henry Bates, Major Elliots, Captain South, Captain Paris, and six others, succeeded in getting away, and making again for the open country. Dudley had received a wound in the leg, and could only get along with great difficulty. He records that he proceeded on crutches through Worcester, Tewkesbury, and Gloucester to Bristol, having been fed three weeks in private in an enemy's haymow. Even the most lynx-eyed parliamentarian must have failed to recognise the quondam royalist general of artillery in the helpless creature dragging himself along upon crutches, and he reached Bristol in safety. His military career now over, he found himself absolutely penniless. His estate of about two hundred pounds per annum had been sequestered and sold by the government. His house in Worcester had been seized, and his sickly wife turned out of doors, and his goods, stock, great shop and ironworks, which he himself valued at two thousand pounds, were destroyed. 
he had also lost the offices of sergeant-at-arms, lieutenant of ordnance, and surveyor of the mews, which he had held under the king. In a word, he found himself reduced to a state of utter destitution. Dudley was for some time under the necessity of living in great privacy at Bristol, but when the king had been executed and the royalists were finally crushed at Worcester, Dud gradually emerged from his concealment. He was still the sole possessor of the great secret of smelting iron with pit-coal, but he resolved upon one more commercial adventure, in the hope of yet turning it to good account. He succeeded in inducing Walter Stevens, line-draper, and John Stone, merchant, both of Bristol, to join him as partners in an ironwork which they proceeded to erect near that city. The buildings were well advanced, and nearly seven hundred pounds had been expended, when a quarrel occurred between Dudley and his partners, which ended in the stoppage of the works and the concern being thrown into chancery. Dudley alleges that the other partners cunningly drew him into a bond, and did unjustly enter staple actions in Bristol of great value against him, because he was of the king's party. But it would appear as if there had been some twist or infirmity of temper in Dudley himself, which prevented him from working harmoniously with such persons as he became associated with in affairs of business. In the meantime, other attempts were made to smelt iron with pit-coal. Dudley says that Cromwell and the then Parliament granted a patent to Captain Buck for the purpose, and that Cromwell himself, Major Wildman, and various others were partners in the patent. They erected furnaces and works in the Forest of Dean, but though Cromwell and his officers could fight and win battles, they could not smelt and forge iron with pit-coal. They brought one Dagny, an Italian glassmaker, from Bristol to erect a new furnace for them, provided with sundry pots of glasshouse clay, but no success attended their efforts. The partners, knowing of Dudley's possession of the grand secret, invited him to visit their works. But all they could draw from him was that they would never succeed in making iron to profit by the methods they were pursuing. They next proceeded to erect other works at Bristol, but still they failed. Major Wildman bought Dudley's sequestered estate, in the hope of being able to extort his secret of making iron with pit-coal. But all their attempts proving abortive, they at length abandoned the enterprise in despair. In 1656, one Captain Copley obtained from Cromwell a further patent with a similar object, and erected works near Bristol, and also in the forest of Kingswood. The mechanical engineers employed by Copley failed in making his bellows blow, on which he sent for Dudley, who forthwith made his bellows to be blown feasibly. But Copley failed, like his predecessors, in making iron, and at length he too desisted from further experiments. Such continued to be the state of things until the Restoration, when we find Dud Dudley a petitioner to the King for the renewal of his patent. He was also a petitioner for compensation in respect of the heavy losses he had sustained during the civil wars. The King was besieged by crowds of applicants of a similar sort, but Dudley was no more successful than the others. He failed in obtaining the renewal of his patent. Another applicant, for the like privilege, probably having greater interest at court, proved more successful. Colonel Proger, 
and three others were granted a patent to make iron with coal. But Dudley knew the secret, which the new patentees did not, and their patent came to nothing. Dudley continued to address the king in importunate petitions, asking to be restored to his former offices of sergeant-at-arms, lieutenant of ordnance, and surveyor of the mews or armoury. He also petitioned to be appointed master of the charter-house in Smithfield, professing himself willing to take anything or hold any living. We find him sending in two petitions to a similar effect in June 1660, and a third shortly after. The result was that he was reappointed to the office of sergeant-at-arms, but the mastership of the charter-house was not disposed of until 1662, when it fell to the lot of one Thomas Watson. In 1661 we find a patent granted to Mr. William Chamberlain and Dudley, Esquire, for the sole use of their new invention of plating steel, etc., and tinning the said plates. But whether Dud Dudley was the person referred to, we are unable precisely to determine. A few years later, he seems to have succeeded in obtaining the means of prosecuting his original invention, for in his Metallum Martis, published in 1665, he describes himself as living at Green's Lodge in Staffordshire, and he says that near it are four forges, Green's Forge, Swin Forge, Heath Forge and Cradley Forge, where he practices his perfect invention. These forges, he adds, have barred all or most of their iron with pit-coal since the author's first invention in 1618, which hath preserved much wood. In these four, besides many other forges, do the like, yet the author hath had no benefit thereby to this present. From that time forward, Dud becomes lost to sight. He seems eventually to have retired to St. Helens in Worcestershire, where he died in 1684, in the eighty-fifth year of his age. He was buried in the parish church there, and a monument, now destroyed, was erected to his memory. End of chapter 3